Sweet. Got your Bibles? We're in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Let's, let's pray this morning. Lord, we just thank you uh, for the body of Christ. We thank you, Jesus, that uh, you've brought us together. We're under one head, the Lord Jesus. He's the head of the church. He's our great shepherd. He is the pastor of the sheep. And so, Jesus, this morning, um, we come to you, and we pray, Lord, that we would uh, sense your presence here with us, God, that we would sense the directing of your, your staff, your rod and your staff, Lord. We, we thank you, God, for your presence that comforts us. And Jesus, I pray that, that your presence would be a source of strength for us today, would be a source of comfort. We come to you, Lord, with a, with a heart of humility just to say that we need you and that we're thankful, Lord, for all that you've done to save us, Lord, to share your love with us, to share eternal life and salvation with us and to call us into relationship with you. And so, Lord, we set our hearts upon you this morning. Jesus, we set up our hearts upon your kingdom. We're thankful, Lord, that you have made us citizens of the kingdom of heaven. That is where our citizenship lies. And so, Lord, this morning we gather around you, around your word, around your name to glorify you. And so, Lord, we pray you're just your blessing on our time in the word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Sweet. So we're in Deuteronomy 6. I thought we'd just do this. Look, the plan is this. We've, we've wrapped up as a church. We've come kind of this past year through um, Judges and through uh, Joshua. And we're going to kind of continue, keep, keep on keeping on. We're going to Fly over Ruth. We're going to take a quick skip over Ruth next Sunday and then right into the book of Samuel because we've been through Ruth a couple times as a church, okay? So we'll be heading into 1 Samuel. But this morning, just with us getting back together, I thought that, you know, the Lord put this passage on my heart from Deuteronomy chapter 6. We sang it this morning. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. Verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. Now, those words, an Orthodox Jewish, Jewish person calls those words the Shema. Have you heard that before? I'm sure lots of you have heard that, right? Yes? No? Shema in Hebrew just means hear. Hear, O Israel. Hear this, the Shema. And it's this lesson. It's, well, I guess I would say this. For Hebrew people, for Jewish people, this is like one of the most important uh, passages of Scripture in all of the Torah. If you are a devout Jew, you recite this verse multiple times a day. If you're a little Jewish boy born into an Orthodox home, from the time you can speak, you are taught to memorize this. These are the first words you're taught. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Because it's teaching families and children to affirm that there is one true living God. And the reason this confession of faith is so important that when we look at the Bible, when we look at the context of the Old Testament, the nations all around Israel, the peoples all around them worship many different gods, many goddesses. They were involved in all sorts of religious practices. And, and this verse was instruction for the people of God as they came into the promised land that they were to worship one God who was unique who was holy, who was the one true living God. And, and really the background of Deuteronomy really matters to this, this verse that we read here. Deuteronomy is preparing the people of God to enter into the promised land after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. 
In fact, that name Deuteronomy, it's kind of a funny name, isn't it? It's like try and spell that. If that you might have had that on a spelling test somewhere at some point in your life. I don't know. But Deuteronomy just means this. It means second law. Deutero, second, nomos, law. A second law. Now, it's not second in the sense of like numerical importance or something like that. Like there's first laws of serving God and then second laws of God. It's not that idea, but it means a retelling a repeating of the law that Moses was recounting to a new generation the laws of God before they entered into the promised land. And that's why it needed to be repeated. Deuteronomy was written 40 years after the whole Exodus account. And during those years, the entire generation that had been forbidden to enter into the promised land had passed away. And the people who had experienced God's deliverance, who had been freed from slavery, who had experienced the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea when the waters parted to their right and to their left, who had seen the presence of God come down on Mount Sinai when the law was given. That entire generation had passed away, minus Joshua and Caleb and Moses. They were all dead. And Israel had wandered for 40 years in the wilderness while they died off. And now this new generation that were only children in the midst of those days, in the midst of those miraculous days, uh, were now entering into their land with their own children. And Moses gave them the, the record of the law. He recorded these speeches in Deuteronomy to prepare this new generation to renew their covenant with God, to be people who live for God, serve God, to declare this, that he is the one true living God. And they, they were getting ready to enter into the land. So Deuteronomy is the retelling of the law to a new generation. And the timing when Moses delivered uh, Deuteronomy was significant because they are about to enter into something, the promised land. They're about to have their own version of the Red Sea. You know, the Jordan Rivers, the Jordan River is going to Apart for them, the Lord is going to stop it, the flow of that water. They're going to miraculously cross the Jordan River as God hold backs the, hold backs the water in full flood stage. And they're going to have to go into a land and they're going to have to face people who are going to be their enemies, inhabitants of the land, nations who are enemies of the living God. So the law was given a second time so that this generation would know what was required of them as they entered into the promised land? Moses wasn't going to go with them. So he gave the law to them to prepare them. And so this is the context of Deuteronomy. God brought the Israelites through the Red Sea first, and then he made this covenant with them at Mount Sinai. And he didn't, he didn't tell them how to live until he saved them. That's actually the, that's actually the, the pattern of the scripture, the whole Bible. God God shows you his grace and he saves you and then he teaches you how to live. And so this new generation is going to see God rescue them. He's going to take them through the Jordan River at a time of year when it's impossible and they're going to have their own equivalent of Mount Sinai. They're going to gather and the law is going to be repeated to them and they're going to commit themselves to be the covenant people of God. And so it's like a repeat performance. Now the centerpiece of this whole thing is this verse here. It's going to come up on the screen. The Shema, this is the centerpiece of all of God's instruction to them. It's this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. This is the centerpiece of how God's people were to live in this foreign land. In fact, you remember that if we turn to the pages of the New Testament, Jesus said that this was the first and greatest commandment, didn't he? He was asked and he put the question back on a young man and he said, I think it's love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. And Jesus said, that's right. And the second command is what? It's like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Central to loving God is understanding the nature of who, who he is. And the Lord said this to his people, the Lord, through Moses, the Lord, the Lord our God is one. He's one. Which means this, we're singing it this morning, you know. I asked Martin to do that song. I heard it. I, I got to just pump my, one of my favorite websites, The Versus Project. If you're not familiar with it, The Versus Project is a great memory verse website. They produce lots of music, this scripture, and it's, it's awesome. And that's where that song came from. But when we say the Lord our God, the Lord is one, what we're saying is this, is that he is God alone. It's a very loaded word, one. It's not just... Hey, Trinity, one God. No, it means this, that he stands alone in all of the universe, one God. He is holy. To say that he is one, it carries the idea of uniqueness. To say that he is one and only in comparison to all other gods and goddesses, the many pagan gods, he is unique. He's true. He alone is God. In fact, the, the Hebrew word for one is ehad. And ehad, it, it means one, it's translated one, but it's a compound unity. It means that it's taking several things together and it's, they're one together. I was thinking about it's like a sports team, you know? Hey, I'm having my very last day of minor hockey, 15 years today, coaching, coaching my kids. It's been so fun. And today's the last skate at 4.30 with Eli. So, uh, yeah, I might be just, you know, a little teary-eyed later on. But with a hockey team, what do you do? You, you take different bodies and you bring them together and we say, our identity is one. You're not a bunch of individuals, we're a team. Or we say in Scripture, the, the Lord says this, that, that a man shall leave his parents and he'll be joined to the wife of his youth and the two shall become one. It's a compound unity a compound unity. Now, when we, I, I want to chuck something up on the screen for you. When we read this, where it says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, the word for God in Hebrew is El. Okay, that's singular, God or God, little g. It can be a reference to a pagan God too, okay? So El, that's singular God. But the plural of God, El, is Elohim. That make sense? You got a singular God and you got plural gods in the scripture. And we don't often see this in the midst of our English translations as we read. So if you'd go to the next slide, I want, I want you to see this, that it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, that means Jehovah, our God, Elohim, that's plural, right? That's not singular. The Lord Jehovah, plural, Elohim, the Lord Jehovah is one. We believe this as followers of Jesus, that the, the reason why Elohim is there and that it's plural is because it is pointing us 
to the fact that God is a trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We worship one God existing in three persons. And the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, does not contradict the trinity when it says God is one. But we believe this, that it establishes the truth and the reality of the trinity. Three persons, one God. Now, Israel was preparing to enter the land of Canaan. If they were to put Yahweh, Jehovah, alongside the false gods of the other nations, the false gods of the Canaanites, all these people that we've recently seen, actually, in the book of Judges, all of these people groups, if they were to put God on the same plane and the same level of the gods of the nations around them, that would be to deny their own confession of faith. Because their confession of faith, the Shema, was this, that the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. He's unique. He stands alone. He can't be compared to any other God. He is the one true living God. Now, it's crazy because when we go to John chapter 10, maybe if you got your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 10. We're told in John chapter 10 about a time when Jesus was at the Feast of Dedication. The text tells us that it was in the winter. The Feast of Dedication is the celebration of Hanukkah, right? Hanukkah, never say it right. And the Jews gathered around him and they asked him a question. You'll see it in your, I'm not going to read it directly, but you could look at verse 22 and following. Chapter 10 of John. We're told about it to this time that the Jews gathered around him. In fact, the language is not like, this isn't a nice gathering around him. It's like a mob, okay? They're feeling kind of violent, actually. And they ask him this question, how long will you keep us in suspense? Are you the Christ? Tell us plainly. And Jesus said this to them. He said, I've already told you. I've like told you plainly, the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. Jesus said this, just look at everything I've been doing, all the miracles I've been performing, the lame walk, the blind see, the dead are raised. Like, look at the things I'm doing. It's proof to you, you know, I mean, if we were to dig deeper, it's like he's saying, find something wrong in me. Look at everything I've done for you. What more evidence can I give? You're asking, am I the Messiah? What do you want to see? And the problem was this, Jesus said, that they were not counted amongst his flock, his sheep. Jesus said this, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And Jesus said this, my Father has actually given them to me. And my Father is greater than all, and no one will snatch them out of my Father's hand. Then Jesus said something that was the capstone of the answer to their question. Remember the question, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ... Tell us plainly. Then Jesus said this. Look at verse 30. I and the Father are 
one. I and the Father are one. What's the Shema? What's the very first lesson that every little Jewish boy learned the second he could speak? That every family taught their children? That every household repeated multiple times a day? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And Jesus said, I and the Father are one. That, that like answered the question for them so clearly. Tell us who you are plainly. It's like we, we miss some of these things in our cultural understanding and our English. Jesus was not only claiming to be Messiah, but to be Lord, to be Yahweh, to be the one true, living, unique, compound unity God, Yahweh. And that was not missed by those who heard him. Because the text, if we were to read it, I'm not going to read it to you this morning, but you can go home and read it today or read it at home now. Uh, That was not missed by those who heard him because the gospel of John tells us that instantly they picked up stones to kill him. They considered it blasphemy. In fact, it's amazing. In John's gospel, this is already the fifth time they try to stone Jesus to kill him. And, and, And... He said this, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And they said, we don't stone you. We're not going to stone you for any of those things. We are going to stone you because you, being a man, made yourself God. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. And it's amazing. They, they, They found nothing objectionable about what Jesus did. You know, it's funny. You like talk to people about Jesus and nobody ever objects with the things that Jesus did. What people object with is the things that Jesus said. It's his word that offends people. It's his word that's a sword and pierces hearts and pierces minds. And it's, it's true today. You know, many people don't ob- object with what Jesus did. They object with his word. And this crowd objected because he, they said, a mere man claimed to be God. But church, we believe this. This is our confession of faith. This is who Jesus is. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, Son of Man, the second person of the Trinity, one with the Father, Savior of the world. Our our Lord, we confess Jesus is Lord. That's a confession of the church, right? The Lord our God, the Lord is one. We, we, We believe in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that means this, that Jesus cannot be placed on level ground with anyone else. Jesus cannot be placed on level ground with other gods. Christian faith cannot be placed on par with other religions because the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. He is unique unto himself. He is the true living God. To him belongs compound unity, The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one. To Him belongs uniqueness. He is the one true God. And when Jesus said, I and the Father are one, He's he's not saying that He and the Father are the same person. He's not saying the Father and the the Son are the same person. They're distinct. But they're one in essence. 
The Father is God and the Son is God, but the Father is not the Son and the Son is not the Father. Jesus is speaking about his unity with the Father in heaven. They are one. In Israel, they they taught their children this. They said, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. See, church, we have the greatest privilege in the world. The greatest privilege you can ever have in this life is this, to love and worship the Lord. Amen? To love and worship Jesus. The greatest privilege in this world is to be counted amongst those who have been redeemed by Jesus. The greatest privilege in this world is to be called by the name that is above every other name. And Jesus has brought those who've been called by his name into a family. He says it's a body. He calls it the church. And we love him and we worship him. And our confession is this, Jesus is Lord. Moses said, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Jesus again said, that was the greatest commandment. And he said, the second was just like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I think that it's like, you know, our culture doesn't get this. They say, what? Maybe I would ask this question, like, can you command someone to love someone else? Can you command someone to love God? Isn't love an emotion? How can can it be commanded? But, But no, the Bible teaches us this, that love is not an emotion. Emotions are part of love. Love includes emotions, but according to the Bible... Love is an act and it's a choice of the will to set your affections on someone else. And we're called to set our affections, to set our praise upon the Lord. We choose this. We choose to love Jesus. We choose to worship Jesus. We choose to set our affection on Christ Jesus. And our love for Jesus is to involve the totality of our lives, everything that we are, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That's everything, right? That's everything. All that's within you. That's why the psalmist said this, bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless, this, we read this throughout the psalms all over the place. Bless the Lord, O my soul. He's saying this, love God, my soul. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and with all that is in me, bless his holy name. We sing that even as a church, don't we? And obedience and devotion to Jesus is what makes us unique as a people. It's what makes us unique as what's called the church. It's our devotion to Christ. We remember this, that we are called by his name, and he has called us to be salt and light in this world. We are to be to, for Jesus the, the visible representatives of his kingdom on earth. He's filled us with his spirit. The way we live, our morality, our sense of justice, our worship, it is going to stand out in comparison to the culture around us because we've set our affections on Jesus. In contrast to the 
immorality and the injustice and the idolatry and the confusion of the culture around us, our heart for Jesus, our lives for Jesus need to stand out. But it takes this wholehearted commitment. All your heart, all your strength, all your soul. So the Shema is for the the people who are called to be faithful, to be obedient to the Lord and to him alone. And it makes them uniquely his people. Now, here's the problem. I blow this every day, don't you? I'm like a total failure at this. It's like I love, I love hanging out with the guys on Tuesday morning at our men's prayer because we just, you know, talk about the Lord and then we confess how big of failures we are. It's like one moment, I'm on with the Lord and in a nanosecond, I'm like, gonzo and I'm not loving him with all my heart and with all my mind. And it means this, that you and I are desperately in need of the grace of God, his unmerited favor. And he extends to, to us Freshly through his son, day after day, the word of God tells us that the mercies of God are new every morning because his faithfulness is great. Church, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is a compound unity, three in one. Our God is unique amongst all the gods of the nations. But what I love is this, on the night that he was betrayed in John chapter 13, Jesus met with his disciples, and on that night, he gave them a new commandment. And he said this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. You also are to love one another, and by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. What's astounding to me is this, is that Jesus said we will be known as his disciples, by our love for one another. It's not our our love for the world, our love for the lost, but our love for one another. And out of that will flow love for the world and love for the lost. And that night as Jesus was speaking to his disciples, he told them, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. He promised them the Holy Spirit. He told them that he was the true vine and if they were to bear fruit for the kingdom of God, They would have to abide in him. They would have to make their home in him because apart from him, they could do nothing. He told them that they should expect the hatred of the world. And he encouraged them to take heart because he had overcome the world. And then he prayed for them. John chapter 17 records that prayer. And in John 17, 11, Jesus said this. It's going to be on the screen. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Isn't that incredible? The prayer of Jesus is that his disciples would be one. Just as he shares unique oneness and unity with the Father, compound unity, the three coming together as one, three persons, one God. Jesus said, may the church, may my disciples be one, even as we are one. May they be one, even as we are one. You know, again, a couple factors about the nature of God stand out to me as I think about that, that he's the compound 
unity. He's a compound unity. And we, the body of Christ, are composed of many people, but the Word of God tells us that we've come together. and We've been fashioned into one body called the church. And the head of the church is Jesus. That we have, that even as we together are one, we are under one head, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord our God, the Lord is one, and we confess Jesus is Lord. It tells me this too, that if we're called to be one, it means that we, like God, are a unique people. Those redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Just as the Lord stands out amongst the gods of other nations and other peoples, His people, His church, is called to stand out among the peoples of this world. That's what it means to be one as the Lord our God is one. To stand out, to be unique. The the New Testament tells us this everywhere, that we're called to be holy people, set apart in the midst of our culture. Called to to live as citizens of heaven. Now, how does this happen? It happens by the work of Jesus Christ. Because you and I were born in sin. God is holy. We're we're set apart from him. We can't enter his presence. We can't come anywhere near him in his oneness. He's unique and holy and sinful people cannot approach a holy God. And so what did that holy God do? For people who can't even keep the first and greatest commandment, let alone the second. He sent his son, Jesus. And we know that Jesus, the Son of God, has come. And he has given us understanding so that we might know him who is true. And Jesus went to the cross on our behalf. The Son of God. The one who was one with the Father. And he gave his life as a ransom for the sins of many. To redeem us from our our sinful condition to bring us into relationship with himself that that we might be empowered by his spirit to live as holy people, that we would be the church. And in Christ Jesus, there is forgiveness of sin and there is hope. Jesus has come to make us one in church this morning. One of the exercises of being one and being under the headship of Christ is this. We get to participate in the Lord's table. We come to the table of the Lord. In a moment, Ken and Sue are going to come around and, uh, and serve you communion. But we get to come to the Lord's table and we get to say this, Lord, I, I, I take these elements, the cup and the bread, and I identify myself with you, the one true living God who gave your life on the cross for my sins. Your blood was shed, your body was broken, and you redeemed me. You purchased me. And I want to be identified with you. So one of the actions we do as the church is to participate in the Lord's Supper to say, my life comes from you, Jesus. My salvation comes from you. And then the word of God tells us this, that when we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again, that it's an important action for the church because the church is doing two things when it comes to the table of the Lord. It's looking back to the cross and remembrance, and it's looking forward to the second coming when Jesus comes again. 
And in it, we say, Jesus, you're my life. You're my food. Without you, I'm lost. We partake of the cup, which represents his blood. We partake of the bread, which represents his body. And we say, Jesus, you're my food. I abide in you. Jesus, you're my drink. Apart from you, my sins would leave me separated from the Father in heaven. And so Jesus, at the Last Supper, he, he served his disciples. I want to take you to Matthew chapter 26. In a moment, the worship team's going to come, and we're going to just sing as we prepare our hearts. But it says this in Matthew 26, verse 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, and gave it to the, to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not eat again of the fruit of this vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in the Father's kingdom, in my Father's kingdom. Church, this is a, a special thing that we've not had the privilege to participate in a lot over the last year together. This is us saying, Jesus, your Lord, your life, you're my food. We come under you as a head. Now, the scripture warns that we're not to eat and drink of the cup and the bread in an unworthy manner. And so, look, I would just encourage you, if you're watching online at home or you're here with us this morning, well, if you have not professed Jesus Christ as Lord, I just ask this, would you respectfully refrain from partaking with this morning? No judgment here, anything like that. It's for your own safety, by the way. For your own safety, that's what the scripture says, because God is holy, you should not partake in an unworthy manner. And so the scripture says you need to be thoughtful as you come to the table of the Lord. So if you don't know Jesus, look at at home here, just refrain, okay? Don't feel bad about it or anything. It's all good. The cup and the bread are for those who know Jesus. But another option is this. You want to know Jesus? I got to tell you, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. And that one God that we've spoken about this morning loves you so much that he sent his son, the father sent his son, Jesus, to save you. And if you will put your faith and trust in Jesus who went to the cross on your behalf to pay for your sin and died and was raised to life again, then the word of God tells us that he will give you life and he will save you. And so look at maybe this morning you were like, yeah, I think I will refrain from participating, but you want to and you want to give your heart to Jesus, then look at, do this. As an act of faith, say to Jesus, Jesus, I'm gonna participate. I'm going to partake because I believe you're the one true God. Even if you've never confessed that before, you can partake with us this morning if you'll trust Jesus 